Dear Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning, and Lord, we're thankful that you receive sinful men today, that it's not our merits or our goodness, it is your love which we celebrate this morning. And Lord, we just ask that you would help us as we worship you, that we would be able to exalt your name in the singing, Lord, that the preaching would be simple and plain, and when it comes to the time of invitation, Lord, that each one of us would give to you that which is your due. Lord, that you would be worshipped in our hearts and in our lives, not only in this service, but every moment of this coming week. We ask for your blessing on each part of this service that it may bring glory to your name. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please remain standing. Kind of a different format of the sermon this morning. Uh, We're going to be moving around a little bit, but let's uh, just turn to uh, Romans chapter 5. And uh, I promise you there'll be nothing new in the sermon this morning. If there was something new, then it wouldn't be Bible. And uh, if it's Bible, it's nothing new. Amen. It's God's Word. It's been around a long time, but... Something we must uh, take some time and be reminded of this morning. What I'd like to do is just uh, try to bring forth, try to preach on the subject of what God does with our sins. What God does with our sins. And we're just going to start in Romans chapter 5 and verse 12. It says, Wherefore, as by one man... Sin entered into the world, and death by sin, so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. And, and of course, like I said, this is not new. This is something, if you're familiar with the Bible, it is there. Uh, Every person has sinned. You know what our problem is? Our problem is we do not view our sin as our biggest problem. Uh, We look at other things as as the biggest problem we face. Is it the Russians, if you go back to the Cold War? uh, No, not that anymore. Uh, uh, Someone said, we have met the enemy, and it is us. Uh, I'd say that's probably pretty true. Uh, But that's not the biggest problem. Someone says, it's the Democrats. Someone said, it's Donald Trump. No, he's not the biggest problem. Uh, what is the biggest problem? It is your personal sin between you and God. That is the biggest problem we face. Why, why can't we fill in the blank? Well, the answer is because we haven't taken care of the biggest problem first, which is our sin between us and God. And I'll tell you, it takes it so many different forms in so many different ways. Um, and, you know, we, we want to, and uh, I, I certainly uh, want to present the truth that's in the Bible versus what other people say. And to be turning in your Bibles back to Genesis Uh, chapter 3, if you would, toward the end of the chapter, and we'll pick up a few verses in chapter 4. As we talk about sin entering into the world, that's Genesis chapter 3. And you know, it's amazing. 
this building is, uh, was built as a synagogue. And uh, after buying the building, moving in, one of the neighbors would tell us, he said, yes, he said, uh, he said they would hire my children to come in and turn on the light switches for the Sabbath services so that uh, they wouldn't break the Sabbath and turn on light switches. And I've often told you about uh, after we actually had possession of the building, one of the first things I was doing was going through and disconnecting all the timers. Someone had bought a, a, a hired an electrician and all of the lights in the building were on timers so that uh, the, the lights would come on for their services without them having to break the Sabbath by turning on a switch. But let me ask you, who was responsible for turning on the switch? And they would say, the electrician. But who instructed the electrician? The synagogue did. So who was really responsible for turning on the lights? The synagogue was. They were breaking the Sabbath every time they had a service. Kindling a fire. And uh, those are the kind of arguments you get into when you try to take care of your own sin problem. But when God takes care of it, it's a whole different world, isn't it? And that's what the Bible is about. It's God's love letter to mankind to explain to us what God has done to take care of our sin. And so we start in Genesis chapter 3, and we're going to see something happen here after God had finished talking to Adam and Eve. In verse 21, it says, Unto Adam also and to his wife did the Lord God make coats of skin and clothe them. Now, how do you do that? To make a coat of skin, to make uh, clothing out of that, you have to kill the animal first, don't you? And then you have to take the hide off and tan it. God did all that, apparently, if what we understand in just a moment of time. And, and that's all the Bible says. There's a lot that's left unsaid. But when we get to the next chapter, a few verses later, uh, the, God kind of fills us in on some of the details here. It says, And Abel also brought of the firstlings of his flock, and of the fat thereof, and of the... And the Lord had respect unto Abel and his offering. But unto Cain and his offering, he had not respect. And Cain was very wroth, and his countenance fell. So let's go back and pick up verse uh, 3. It says, And in the process of time, Cain brought of the fruit of the ground an offering unto the Lord. Now, where did Cain and Abel get the idea that they should bring offerings to the Lord. Well, what did God do when He finished all of the judgment? He made Adam and Eve coats. He clothed them. You see, this is what we call a physical picture or a living illustration in the Bible 
God used the death of those innocent animals, the sacrifice, their blood poured out on the ground around the altar, the flesh burned on the altar. He took the skins off of those animals and he made clothing for Adam and Eve to cover their nakedness. The Old Testament word that we're first going to be looking at is the word atonement. And in its simplest Definition, the word atonement means to make an agreement, to, to reconcile things. Uh, if you follow the entire picture and illustration and explanation of all that's in the Old Testament, we get the idea of the rolling back. God has made an agreement that he would accept the sacrifice of these animals until... The true sacrifice would be made. The Old Testament word, atonement. New Testament word, redemption. And so, as we start here, Adam and I mean, Cain and Abel, that's Adam and Eve's sons, got the idea that they were going to bring an offering unto the Lord. Cain brings the fruit of the ground and God says, I don't, I don't respect that offering. I will not accept it. Abel does exactly the same thing that God did when he moved Adam and Eve out of the garden. He brings of the lambs of his flock, it says, and of the fat thereof. Meaning that he had cut up the animal and he had taken, uh, uh, the Bible refers to it oftentimes in the, in the laws of the fat that covereth the inwards and the, uh, the in, uh, entrails and those things. And he had offered that as a sweet savor on the offering. Now, again, if you've ever smelled burning flesh, that's not a sweet savor. I mean, even if you uh, forget and put the meat in the frying pan and uh, it cooks black and crispy and, and, and uh, uh, it'll even catch on fire. I mean, it'll just fill your house full of an arsed, uh, uh, smell and smoke, but God said it was sweet because it was a representation of what He was going to do to pay the price for our sins. It was sweet to God because it meant the agreement, the reconciliation had occurred. And, and this was brought to its highest and fullest sense in Leviticus chapter 16, on what we call the Day of Atonement. In fact, the Jewish people to this day still celebrate this uh, feast as, as much as they can. Uh, I will challenge you, it's impossible to do the things that are contained in the Bible because there's no temple. Before the temple, there was the tabernacle. None of that is in existence today. The Day of Atonement was not an introspective thing looking at your own sin before God. That's what it's become in Jewish tradition today. But it was the day when the high priest would enter into the most holy place with the blood of the sacrifices and he would dip his hand in that bowl of blood and he would sprinkle it upon the mercy seat seven times. It was quite a ritual. 
We, we won't take time this morning to go through the entirety uh, uh, of chapter 16, but let me describe to you uh, the, uh, the pattern that was carried out. The, uh, uh, the priest would offer first a bullock, a young bull. He would slit the juggler vein of that bull as two of his assistants there would hold that and, or more and keep the animal still, and he would gather the blood of that animal in a bowl. Now, let me just chase a little rabbit here today. We just finished Halloween, and everything is about blood and vampires and all this stuff. Do you know why the devil likes that stuff? Because it makes a mockery of what's in the Bible. That's why you should have no part in those things. You don't need to know about Count Dracula. He was a real person, but all the things that they talk about, that's not real at all. It's all just made-up stuff. And I, I don't know why people like gore. But if you want uh, what the Bible says, he would gather the blood of that bullock. I mean, you're, you're talking about quarts of blood in this bowl. And he would then go into the most holy of all. He would have a censer in this hand full of coals and incense. And he would reach behind the veil. And he'd gently rock that thing back and forth so that the smoke of the incense would completely fill the holy of holies, the most holy place. He would then hang the, the censer up and he would step behind that veil. Total darkness. The Ark of the Covenant was in the center. The mercy seat sat on the Ark. He didn't need to see. And he would reach his hand into that blood and he would sprinkle it seven times. Then he would repeat that process with a baby goat. And here's what the Bible says. Let's look down to verse 29 of chapter 16. It says, And this shall be a statute forever unto you, that in the seventh month, on the tenth day of the month, ye shall afflict your souls, ye shall do no work at all, whether it be one of your own country or a stranger that sojourneth among you. For on that day shall the priest make an atonement for you to cleanse you, that ye may be clean from all your sins before the Lord. So this was the idea of the Day of Atonement. And it did not happen without the blood sacrifice. Any person that claims that they're fulfilling the Old Testament ritual today is just simply being dishonest at best. Uh, there's a whole lot worse things out there than dishonesty. Some of it's done to purposely deceive. But this was done every year in the history of the Jewish people. As long as the tabernacle and later the temple was standing, this ritual was carried out. In Jesus' day, it was quite different. You see, when the second temple was built... That's under Zerubbabel. 
That's uh, the, the temple that was built in Ezra and, and uh, the history of Ezra there. There was no ark. There was no mercy seat. That disappeared. They tell us it was a white marble slab was in Herod's temple in Jesus' day. And you know, some people teach that you were saved in the Old Testament by keeping the law. I want to challenge you that never happened. Otherwise, most of the people who lived in the New Testament could never have been saved because from 600 A.D. all the way up until the time of Jesus, there was no no temple. And when there was a temple, there was no ark, there was no mercy seat to sprinkle the blood on. You are always saved by God's grace through faith. That is the Bible message. But God gave us this thing called the atonement to help us see and understand a little bit of what Jesus was saying when he said on the cross, it is finished. Now I want us to go to Hebrews chapter 9. Hebrews chapter 9. And in Hebrews chapter 9, we have the connections being made here between the Old and the New Testament, between the atonement of Leviticus chapter 16 and the redemption of, Uh, the redemptive work of Jesus Christ. And this is why Jesus had to to die on the cross. We call up, the, the theme this morning is what does God do with our sins? God met Abel at that blood stained altar. He said, I accept your sacrifice. He said, we're going to make an agreement here that I am going to roll back the penalty of your sins. And as far as I'm concerned, you are righteous. We get to Hebrews chapter 11 and it talks about righteous Abel. Amen. And we all know about Cain, do we not? He was never accepted before God because he would not do it God's way. God later refined this in Leviticus chapter 16 and in the law and on the day of atonement. The entire nation of Israel, those who were living by the laws of God, an atonement was made. Reconciliation was guaranteed. It was set up that God would forgive their sins. And it was done every year. And so, we start in verse 1 of Hebrews chapter 9. It says, Then verily the first covenant had also ordinances of divine service and a worldly sanctuary. So, the first covenant is the law of God that was given to Moses on Mount Sinai to the nation of Israel as a people, as the physical descendants of Abraham. 
They had ordinances of divine service. God had designed everything that was done. And we uh, went over that in a very summary fashion. And I would encourage you to read through Leviticus chapter 16 in its entirety this afternoon and, and think about these things. But it was a worldly sanctuary. It was physical. It was right here on earth. And only the high priest could enter into that holy, most holy place once every year. And it says in verse 3, And after the second veil, the tabernacle, uh, which is called the holiest of all, which had the golden censer and the ark of the covenant overlaid round about with gold, wherein was the golden pot that had manna and Aaron's rod that budded and the tables of the covenant. And over it, the cherubims of glory shadowing the mercy seat of which we cannot now speak particularly. No one knows what this mercy seat looked like. We have all kinds of pictures and artist rendition, but no person has ever seen this. And this is what the writer of Hebrews is reminding us. It says, now when these things were thus ordained, the priest went always into the first tabernacle, accomplishing the service of God. But into the second went the high priest alone, once every year, not without blood, which he offered for himself and for the errors of his people. The Holy Ghost, this signifying that the way into the holiest of all, was not yet made manifest, while as the first tabernacle was yet standing, which was a figure for the time then present, in which were offered both gifts and sacrifices that could not make him that did the service perfect as pertaining to the conscience, which stood only in meats and drinks and diverse washings and carnal ordinances imposed on them until the time of reformation." Now, we've just read through this chapter, and, and I would like to challenge you. People all the time talk about how difficult the Bible is to understand and interpret. Let me tell you, we just read through one of the most difficult chapters and portions in the entire Bible. How many of you understand exactly what is being talked about here? In the Old Testament tabernacle, the high priest went into the holy place every day. He went into the most holy or the holiest of all once a year with the blood of a bullock for himself and the blood of a baby goat for the nation of Israel. This was picturing or helping us to understand that the way directly to God was not open yet. This is why the word atonement was used. God made an agreement. He said, I will meet you. At a bloodstained mercy seat. It says until the time of reformation. That's not talking about Martin Luther. Uh, that's not talking about uh, what happened in the Middle Ages. The next verse explains to us. It says, but Christ. Being come an high priest of good things to come by a greater and more perfect tabernacle not made with hands. That is to say, not of this building neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood, he entered in once into the holy place, having obtained, what's the word? next word? Eternal redemption. 
You see, here's the connection. The Day of Atonement was a living illustration. It was an agreement that God made. It says, if you'll fulfill the, the ceremonies that I have dictated on the Day of Atonement, He said, I'm going to roll back that penalty one more year until the time of Reformation, until the time when Jesus comes. His sacrifice is not going to be in the worldly uh, sanctuary. That's why. Uh, that's what all those confusing chapters. People get all messed up in that. Jesus is a priest after the order of Melchizedek versus the Levites. Jesus' sacrifice wasn't on earth. That's all there is to it. He was a priest of a different order. You see, he was the one that God sent to solve the problem with sins. You see, atonement was a reconciling. It was rolling back. God says, I don't have to deal with the judgment of sin yet. Next day of atonement, God says, I don't have to deal with the judgment of sin yet. Jesus came. Lived 30 years. Each year, the Jewish people went through that ritual and God said, not yet. Not yet. Not yet. Until Passover week, when they nailed Jesus to a cross. And God said, now. He said, I will deal with all sins for all time now. Now, I want you to think about this. How many of you have ever taken out a loan? You've borrowed money and somebody charged you interest. And, and you said, listen, I, I can't pay you right now. And they'd say, okay, we'll suspend your payments if you had a student loan. We'll suspend your payments, but we're not going to suspend the interest. And so they keep compounding that thing. And then a $5,000 loan is now a $10,000 loan by the time you get it paid off. Well, God took everything. Not only was he moving from Adam and Eve forward, he was moving from the end of time backwards. And we look in awe. That is the right word. As we understand why Jesus said, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? This is what the Bible means when he became sin for us who knew no sin. Jesus did not become a sinner, my friend. He became the sacrifice for our sins. And God poured upon Jesus Christ the wrath of every ounce of God's judgment. You wonder why Jesus was praying with such physical revulsion in the garden that he sweat, as it were, great drops of blood. The Bible says that Jesus prayed about a cup, my friend. You know what was in that cup? 
It was the indignation and the wrath of Almighty God for all sins forever. Jesus took that cup and God poured out on him and I don't know how else to say it the best way I ever ever heard it put. Was Jesus as the infinite God accomplished in just one day on the cross what would take every human being an eternity in hell to accomplish. That's what hell is all about. It's connected right here. You see, we had this thing called atonement where it was rolled back and God not only was going from Adam all the way to Christ, He started at the very end of all things and He worked His way back to Christ and upon Him He put it all. Every sin that was ever sinned. And every bit of judgment that was ever deserved. That's why Jesus had to die on the cross. You know the verse. For the wages of sin is death. Here's what God did with all of our sin. He put it all into one packet. And the Bible says that Jesus by his own blood, entered in once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. Now, the word redemption simply means to buy back, to pay the price. You take a coupon into the store. Now, is that coupon, is that piece of paper really worth the three bucks that they tell you it's worth if you've got a big coupon? No, if you look in the fine print, it says this is worth one one hundred and twenty-fifth of one cent or something like that. Some ridiculously small amount. Because if you show up with just the paper, you're not getting nothing. Uh, The paper is only worth something when you fulfill the requirements on the paper. Uh, if, if you buy two or three of said item, they're going to give you. Well, God had been working on this uh, arrangement here. It's called atonement since Adam and Eve sinned in the garden until the time of Jesus Christ. And upon him he poured every sin, every wrath, every bit of judgment. And we come down to, to verse... Um, 22, and it says, Almost all things are by the law purged with blood, and without the shedding of blood is no remission. Verse 24, For Christ is not entered into the holy places made with hands, which are the figures of the true, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us, nor yet that he should offer himself often, as the high priest entereth into the holy place, Every year with the blood of others. For then must he often have suffered since the foundation of the world. But now once in the end of the world hath he appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Now I want you to skip back and read verse 14 with me. How much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, Purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. 
This is what God did with our sins. This is redemption. This is why Jesus, when he was on the cross, uttered that last phrase, Before, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. He said, It is finished. And the thing that I never get over and the thing that troubles my heart more than anything else is when I'm talking to someone and about their soul and explain to them that Jesus said on the cross, it is finished. And they said, but there's something more for me to do. Now, they don't usually say it in those words. It's more like, but don't we have to live a good life? Uh, don't we have to go to church? Uh, but don't we? No, you don't have to do any of those things to get saved. But if you are saved, you ought to do those things. But we don't do it to earn God's love. We do it because we have God's love. See, God took upon him every sin. You need to stop and think about this. Jesus Christ offered himself to the Father through the eternal spirit. Someone asked, how did Jesus go back to Calvary's mountain and gather up the blood that he had spilt on the cross and that had been absorbed into the ground and go into heaven and sprinkle it on the mercy seat? That verse tells you how he did it right there. Jesus did that through the eternal spirit. I will promise you this. When we get to heaven, there's going to be a blood-sprinkled mercy seat. It's going to be the throne of God. And we're going to spend all eternity talking about God's goodness, His grace, unmerited favor to us, His love for us. We're we're going to celebrate how good God is. Do you think it would hurt for us to get started now? Hello? Could we say amen to that? That's the whole purpose of this morning's sermon. Is to get us to take a look at this. You see, the Old Testament word, atonement, New Testament word, redemption. A verse that we've quoted, the Bible says in Psalm 103, verse 12, As far as the east is from the west... So far hath he removed our transgressions from us. How did God separate us from our sin so far that it could never be reached? Through the redemption that was accomplished in the finished work of Jesus Christ. See, we we live in a day where... Bookkeeping and accurate record keeping is just ridiculous. You know why? Because of computers. 
they're absolutely accurate in their ability to mess up information. Amen? I mean, it used to be that you wrote it down in a book. And if somebody came in and wrote over top of what you wrote down, you could get out your magnifying glass and said, somebody has altered these figures. But when your computer hard drive crashes, where does all that stuff go? Almost makes you believe in the Buddhist idea of the eternal nothingness, does it not? Almost. But uh, the, the truth of the matter is, you can mess things up and they straighten it all out and it's never just quite right. How many of you have ever had that happen? Well, if you've used a computer, you have. But see, God doesn't do things that way. His record keeping is perfect. And Jesus paid for every sin that you ever did or ever will sin. You need to stop and think about this. How many sins did you sin before Jesus died on the cross? Nobody in this room did anything because you weren't here. It was all future tense. But God in His knowledge, not puppetry, we're not Calvinist here. God didn't plan your sin. You did that. But God knew what you would do. And He was able to work the beginning to the end. All at that one point in time. The Bible word, the other Bible word that we're going to look at this morning is justified. And if you want the best definition of the word justified, it's simply this. Just as if I never sinned. That's what the word justified means. Perfectly right. It means totally reconciled. And the Bible tells us that we, in Romans 3.28, it says, Therefore we conclude that a man is justified by faith without the deeds of the law. Romans 5.9, much more. Then, being now justified by His blood, we shall be saved from wrath through Him. Galatians 2.17 But if while we seek to be justified by Christ, we ourselves are also our foul sinners, is therefore Christ the master of, minister of sin? God forbid. We seek to be justified by Christ. We're justified by faith. We're justified through His blood. Titus 3.7 says... That being justified by His grace, we should be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. You see, when you come to God and accept the work that Jesus finished on the cross, He takes the redemptive work of Christ and applies it to your personal account with God. That's justification. You get that by faith. In the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Christ. You get that by the blood of Jesus that's sprinkled on the mercy seat in heaven. 
God does not forgive without a proper payment made. Now, that's a sermon for another day. But forgiveness is always based on payment. It's not based on your ability to forget things. God is not allowed to forget our sins. He cannot remove them as far as the east is from the west until the records have been justified. Otherwise, God would not be holy. Amen? Can we say amen to that this morning? God preserves His holiness. He preserves His truth. He has judged every sin that has ever been sinned. Jesus Christ paid for them on the cross. He paid the price. He bought us back. Now, I want you to go with me to James chapter 2. Now, see, Martin Luther, when he was trying to put his Bible together in German, translating his Bible, did not want to translate James chapter 2 because of these verses that we're going to look at right here. Look at verse 21. Was not Abraham our father justified how? Can you read that out loud? By what? So let's try it again. Was not Abraham our father justified how? By works. Uh, look at uh, verse 25. It says, Likewise also was not Rahab the harlot justified how? By works. When she had received the messengers and sent them out another way. For as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. Do you see how justification works? See, we get so caught up in the theoretical. And we get so caught up in, in dealing with the theological parts of this thing that we forget that if I'm justified by faith, works have to follow. Amen? I don't do works to get faith. The church owns a van. We purchased that van through a dealership in Stillwater, Oklahoma. You know what? That van was every bit a van when it came off the assembly line at GM. It did not become a van... When I took the key and put it into the ignition and it started and it became... It was already a van. It works because it was built to work. We get this idea that our salvation relationship is not real until we accept it in this... No, no. It's real because God designed it. What you have to do is you have to live it. And if you don't live it, you're just in a world of make-believe. And see, that's where the church comes in. I know that's not the greatest illustration, but it's the best one I could come up with this morning. You see, what it is, 
is Greek philosophy, Platonism, that something isn't real until it works. And the, and the real is not in what we see, it's in what's behind. No, in the Bible, there are no such divisions. We don't play games with our minds. Salvation is real. When Jesus died on the cross, he paid for every sin that was ever sinned. Why do most people end up in hell then? That's what the Bible says, is it not? Straight is the gate, and narrow is the way which leadeth unto life. How many of you remember? And few there be that find it. Those are terrifying thoughts. But they're the words of Jesus Christ. The atonement was real. God said, not now. Not yet. Not yet. Until Jesus came and was suspended between heaven and earth on a cross. And God said, now. And he poured out on him his entire judgment for all the history of mankind. And Jesus shrieked out in his agony, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? But before it was over, he said, It is finished. And then he addressed God as he always had. Father, into thy hand I commend my spirit. Having obtained an eternal redemption for us. That becomes yours when you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. You are justified by faith. Justified by His blood. Justified by God's grace. Justified by the finished work of Jesus Christ. Then you know what ought to happen? You ought to say, I want to get baptized. Amen? You ought to say, I want to join the church. You ought to say, I want to tell other people about what Jesus has done for me. I do not do the works to get my salvation. But if I have a real salvation that works, it's going to make those things happen. You know what? Christians don't stop sinning. Wouldn't that be true? Wouldn't that be wonderful if it were true? But then God would have to take us to heaven, and he wants us to serve him. And so he is going to use us, imperfect and sinful as we are. Because sin is no longer topical. If you can say, God has saved me, so I'm going to go out and do whatever I want, the Bible says you don't have God's salvation. You just don't have it. But when you get justified the Bible way, it makes things happen. It makes you obedient to the Word of God. All God's people said, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning. Lord, I pray that we'd be able to see just a little bit about what you've done with sin. And yet, Lord, most importantly, that there's a 
practical application for each of us to live each and every day. What would faith cause us to do? What would that relationship with Jesus work in our hearts and in our lives? Lord, we ask that you would transform us. That you would use us as you would see fit to take your word to the world in which we live. We ask that during the time of invitation, maybe we just need to come and say thank you. It's been a while since we said thank you for saving us. Lord, we ask that you would let us see the great work that you accomplished, that we could be free from our sins, and that we would take that freedom that you've given us and use it to serve you. We ask that you would work in our lives and in our church to bring glory to your name. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's stand together. Andrew, come lead us. If you need to come and pray, the altar is open. If you're here today and you're not sure about your salvation, we'd love to take the Bible and help you understand what it means to know that what Jesus did on the cross applies to your life and your eternity. As we sing, would you come?